at the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into service. Now, those are the words of Donald English in a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And I think they express just in one sentence the conviction behind this conference. I wonder if this is your conviction as well. Let me just read those words again. At the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. Uh, We're trying last night and again this morning, and uh, thank you so much for being here, um, to encourage you in that conviction, partly by reminding you from the scriptures about the saving work of Jesus Christ and about everything that the Bible teaches about who God is, and about uh, his purposes for the world that motivate us into the service of others. And also trying to encourage you with uh, stories of frustration and triumph in ministry, God's triumph, ultimately, uh, that perhaps will encourage you in some of the ministry relationships and opportunities uh, that you have. And I want to begin this morning with acknowledging uh, how difficult that can be, and particularly... Um, that any time we are involved in ministry, we encounter people who are hard for us to love. And frankly, any time we are serving with other people, some of the people that we are serving with can be hard to love. In fact, I was just thinking about this as you were kindly mentioning uh, a book that I wrote. I always feel the need to give a a disclaimer. Um, The topics I write about typically are not things that I know a lot about or am particularly good at, but things that I was trying to work on, and part of working on it was writing and teaching about them. So that's definitely the case with a book like uh, Loving the Way Jesus Loves. But we want to get this morning, particularly in this uh, first talk, at getting the right heart attitude for ministry And um, particularly in the context where some of the people and some of the situations we're in, particularly when we are serving people, can be be very challenging. People sometimes um, ask me about some of the differences between serving God in gospel ministry at 10th Presbyterian Church and serving God in gospel ministry at Wheaton College. And one of the first things I say is, you know, we, we, had, uh, we had most of the problems you have in ministry are people problems, and we had people at 10th Church, and we've got people at Wheaton College, and, you know, that, that's just the way life is. If you're involved in ministry in the life of the church, uh, a lot of your challenges are going to be uh, with people. Let me just give you one example from literature, because I, I can hardly think of um, a better example or something that gets at just how difficult it can be sometimes to love people uh, that we find particularly challenging, what I, what I sometimes call somebody who is extra grace required, E-G-R. And uh, one, one of the just short works of literature that I love is about this is by the poet, uh, English poet Robert Browning in, in a poem called Soliloquy of the Spanish Cloister. And it, he just gets so perfectly and deliciously at the frustration that we can have in our lovelessness towards other people. So this is a soliloquy. If you know your Shakespeare, you know a soliloquy is um, one person speaking their inward thoughts and speaking them out loud, but you have an opportunity to listen in. And this particular soliloquy is told from the perspective of a monk in in a Spanish monastery 
And he is watching uh, one of his fellow monks work in the garden. Um, This other monk's name is Brother Lawrence. And as he watches this fellow monk work, he's muttering all kinds of unkind words about everything that this other monk does. Every, somehow, every little movement that Lawrence makes is an irritation to his fellow monk. The way he waters the roses, the way he trims the myrtle bushes, um, and, and then he describes what it is like to sit next to Lawrence at mealtimes and be able to listen to him gulp his orange juice the way that he does or how he talks about the weather in the same way every day um, or listen to his annoying questions. One of the questions this other um, monk asks is, what's the Latin name for parsley? And what the monk who's soliloquizing thinks to himself is, what's the Greek name for swine snout? Um, you, can, you can just get that inner attitude. And then after dinner, um, Lawrence carefully polishes his platter and he washes his sacred goblet, which he alone has marked with the letter L so that he knows it's Lawrence's goblet. And the monk that's speaking about these things just despises everything about that ritual right down to the way that Lawrence puts his plate back on his own personal shelf. I find that poem very true to life. I've never lived in a monastery. Uh, nobody's ever asked me the Latin name for, for parsley. But it's, there's an imagination here showing just how irritated we can get with one another. And sometimes it's not just what they do that annoys us, but also the way they do it. And a lot of our irritations and frustrations in the grand scheme of things are very, very small. How people eat, what they talk about, how they walk across the garden, Um, but um, Browning is also showing in the soliloquy where those kinds of attitudes lead, because by the end of this poem, the monk is trying to figure out a way that he can catch Brother Lawrence in some damnable sin, um, or in some other way even destroy him. And I think it's also very striking that this is all set in a Christian community, because Browning is showing us that we are as likely to be irritated with our brothers and sisters as we are with anyone. In fact, the poem ends with uh, the chapel bells uh, calling the monks to evening worship. And even as he begins to recite the creed, you can tell that this monk is still harboring hateful thoughts in his hypocritical heart. I want to uh, invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. And I think we see in this chapter... Some signs of some similar attitudes and frustrations among the disciples. It's a very familiar passage, but I I want us to consider specifically the contrast between the disciples and their approach to serving people in ministry and Jesus and his approach to serving people in ministry. It's Mark chapter 6 and beginning at verse 30. And will you now listen to the word of God? The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them 
When he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, let me uh, share a little bit what um, brought me to this text as um, a a scripture passage to really help us with what love looks like um, in ministry. I had been uh, preaching in 1 Corinthians 13, which is uh, very familiar. You've probably heard it at lots of weddings, um, the great love passage of scripture. It's the one that says, love is this, and uh, love isn't that and kind of clarifies for us what, um, what lo- love looks like. And one of the things that I find very helpful in that passage, uh, maybe not always very encouraging, um, is to uh, put my own name in the passage wherever it says love. And uh, just as a way of seeing how I'm doing, I don't know how this works for you. Uh, it doesn't work so well for me. Philip is patient and kind. Do I need to go on? Uh, David does not envy or boast. Uh, James is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Philip bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Philip never fails. Um, You try your own name in there. Uh, I I think it'll bring you up uh, pretty short. But actually, when you put Jesus in the passage, it all flows very beautifully because he's the personification of love. Jesus is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He never fails. Um, And so I was uh, teaching on this passage, and of all the things that I found challenging in the passage, this line, love is not irritable, um, I found particularly, particularly challenging. I I tend to think, I don't know about you, I tend to think of irritability as just kind of a normal response to the frustrations of life. Um, You know, and when I think of the big sins, that's not the one that's maybe at the top of my list. And, um, you know, just ask yourself um, in your own irritability with things, when can you remember the last time that you asked the Lord very specifically to help you deal graciously and non-irritably with uh, that person, or maybe there's more than one, who uh, just kind of has a way of annoying you? When you put irritability in the context of the love of Jesus, it quickly gets elevated on your list because what Paul is saying is, Irritability is the exact opposite of love. That's not love. It's, it's on the hate side, not on the love side. And it gets in the way of our 
charity, and so it's um, a very significant sin issue in the life of, of service. Um, now, if you, if you look uh, at the original Greek for the term that Paul uses, it has a wide range of meanings. So your translation may say something a little differently in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily angered. Love is not quick-tempered. Um, these are um, some of the translations that have been used. And actually, the term has a pretty wide range of, of meaning. Um, I like to say it this way, love is not exasperated. Um, it doesn't get exasperated. Um, and the reason that's for us there in the Bible is because it's tempting for believers in Christ. That's, that's why it's there. And uh, maybe a, a struggle for you as it sometimes is for me. We're living in a fallen world full of fallen people, and some of those fallen people irritate us, annoy us, exasperate us, anger us. Uh, they're hard to love. Extra grace required. And uh, in that context, I think what we see in Mark chapter 6 is very, very helpful. Here's a famous incident from early in our Savior's earthly ministry. Jesus had been teaching and performing miracles. He had been in the, the region of the Galilee by the lake there. This was long before he went to Jerusalem and died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and all of the things that we were uh, celebrating last night. And here is um, a story of disciples who are frustrated with people that they are serving in ministry. And you see an absolute contrast with the way that Jesus responds to them. And I think his response teaches us so much about how to serve people in ministry when they are hard to love. The context here is significant. The 12 disciples had been out serving actively in ministry. In the way we would say it today, they had been out on their first short-term missionary trip. And uh, if you've ever been on a trip like that yourself or have seen a family member go on a trip uh, like that, you know that it's a dynamic experience. You have experiences in ministry you've never had before. There's often a lot to talk about. You, you see God work um, in, a, in a way that you've never seen him work before. So these disciples had gone out. Jesus sent them out two by two and uh, put them in a pretty extreme situation. They went out with any, without any bread or any money, trusting absolutely for the Lord to take care of their needs. And they went out, and they were preaching repentance, and they were healing the sick, and they were casting out demons. I mean, this was some mission trip. I mean, this really would have been something to come back to your congregation and, uh, and tell people about, just this full range of ministry. And they went from one city to the next city, and in every place they were uh, seeing God work in powerful ways. I mean, people were turning away from their sins. People whose souls had been dominated by de demonic power were completely delivered. People whose bodies were broken by the, their life in a fallen world had been made whole. Can you even imagine the, just the excitement and the, the energy of that conversation as one disciple was trying to tell Jesus what, what had happened to them and before they could finish, another disciple wanted to share a similar experience or maybe even a more dynamic experience of, of God's work. And so they, they have this uh, debriefing session on their short-term mission experience, sharing what God had done. It's described for us in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The kind of ministry report anyone would long to give. Well, that trip 
with all of its effort and energy and travel and constant ministry, must have been exhausting. And by the time the uh, disciples were finished sharing everything that was in their hearts, they were totally spent. It reminds me a little bit of what it's like to um, pick a child up at camp and, um, you know, the first 30 minutes in the car, they just, it's nonstop, they want to tell you everything that happen, and then after that, they just go to sleep. Uh, That's basically the kind of situation the apostles were in here. And um, and I, I resonated, I have to say, with the brother who said last night, you know, I fire myself on Friday, and then I rehire myself on Monday. You, you need that. You need that Sabbath. You need that break in the life of ministry. And Jesus has such compassion for that. I mean, it's amazing here how how tenderly and how thoughtfully he cares for them in their need, offering them rest and refreshment. What an amazing invitation in verse 30. Come away by yourselves and rest. And uh, Mark goes on to emphasize this point a little bit. And you have to understand, if if you've read the Bible for a while, you know this. The Bible doesn't give you any incidental, meaningless details. The details it gives are always significant for understanding the, the purposes of God. And in this case, Mark emphasizes why it was that they needed to get away from it all. Many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And anyone who has um, ever served in ministry knows that ministry abhors a vacuum. Um, I have a friend that sometimes, um, you know, you ask him how things are going, and he'll say, yeah, you know, we're living life at the pace of ministry, uh, which means it's constant, it's relentless. There are always uh, needs that need to be met. And there are always more people who need help. And sometimes it's very important just to get away for a little while. There's, there's a proper and appropriate place for what today people might call self-care. Not in a selfish way, just recognizing the, the limitations of our bodies and our spirits. And Jesus obviously recognizes the need the disciples have for this. And so Jesus and his disciples go away in a boat and they are, they are heading across the lake to um, uninhabited territory, to one of the more desolate uh, regions around the Galilee. And don't you just envy the disciples a little bit for this moment? Imagine what it was like to be with Jesus in the boat, invited to go with him to a place of total rest and refreshment. What a, what a sweet privilege uh, Matthew and Bartholomew and Philip and all the rest of them enjoyed. It could have been just a great day for them. But, as I might say, unfortunately, that's not exactly what happened. They, they didn't have that restful experience that they were hoping for. And you have to understand, Jesus was at this point the most popular man in Israel. There was a massive demand for his teaching ministry and for his healing ministry. And people just followed him every opportunity they had. It was kind of the way the the paparazzi would follow the movie stars, only without the cameras. And people looked out at the lake, and they saw what by now had become a familiar sail on the horizon. And they anticipated where the boat was heading and they ran along the shoreline and they reached the place where his boat would land. Mark describes it like this in verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Um, You just even from that you get a sense of the eagerness people had for the ministry of Jesus because um, 
Now, it's not that easy to run along the shore and get to a place where a boat is going to uh, ahead of the boat, and yet they, they did it. I think the disciples could be forgiven a little bit if they were disappointed to see the crowds gathering yet again on the lake shore. I mean, seriously, when would they get a chance to rest? And yet, Jesus went straight to the shore, and when he saw the crowd, his heart went out to them. He had compassion on them. It was like uh, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and his shepherd's heart wanted to engage with them. And Mark tells us he began to teach them many things. Even in a point of exhaustion, Jesus was engaged. The teaching session went on and on and on all day. And the longer that Jesus went, the wearier and the hungrier the disciples became. And we can certainly understand that. I I doubt there's any person who's been in the church for very long at all who has uh, never just had the little thought, you know, when is this sermon going to end? When is this worship service going to get over? You know, check a watch from time to time. It's just in the nature of things that people have that um, response. And so you can understand uh, the kind of attitude that was building within the disciples. And notice what they do here in verse 35. Finally, when it grew late, they come and say to Jesus, "Uh, listen, Lord, take a hint here. This is a desolate place. Uh, It's getting late. Um, Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and get themselves something to eat. Now, Just looking at things from the merely human perspective, it sounds perfectly reasonable and absolutely practical. Surely it was the case that people were getting hungry. Um, The disciples certainly were. Uh, Remember what Mark had said earlier, they had not even had time to eat. And so they had a, a physical appetite here that had been building throughout the day. It was getting very late in the day. Soon it would be much too late in the day for all of these people, thousands of them, as it turns out, to find uh, anything to eat anywhere in the neighborhood. I mean, just imagine in this village culture, um, you, you can't just accommodate a thousand guests. I mean, um, even, um, even in an urban environment like downtown Philadelphia, a conference with a thousand people in it, I mean, it soon fills up all of the, the restaurants in the immediate uh, vicinity. And uh, the disciples surely had a kind of point here. Really, it was time for these people to leave. Um, I, it reminds me a little bit of the way um, sometimes um, some of our, our children will be particularly after a worship service when we're kind of lingering to talk and visit with people and they're just, they really want to go and they're tugging on your sleeve or just, you know, kind of giving you those little hints. And that's what the disciples were doing with Jesus. I think it's uh, fairly apparent here that the disciples were getting exasperated, frustrated with people and their needs and the demands of trying to meet them. And... I think you get a sense from what they say of an impatience that has been building until finally it boils over. Notice that they interrupt Jesus in the middle of his preaching ministry. And notice further that they address him in the imperative mood. They're not just raising a question. Um, they're not um, saying, please, Lord, will you consider this? 
they say to Jesus, send them away. And I don't think it's hard to imagine the kinds of things they had been thinking to themselves and perhaps saying to one another before they finally told Jesus what to do. I imagine them thinking things like this. Uh, Boy, I'm really starving, aren't you? Um, Why don't these people just leave us alone for a day? Uh, Doesn't Jesus know when to quit? Uh, These are the kinds of, you know, thoughts that go behind this statement, send them away. Jesus had a very different idea how to respond to the situation. The more we look at what he said and what he did, the more we see his heart of love. And the more I think we see how to love people in ministry, even when it's hard to love them. Jesus puts the demand back on the disciples. You give them something to eat, he says. Uh, I imagine with a little bit of a wry smile. I mean, if the disciples wanted to take charge, if they were giving the orders here, well, why don't they provide dinner? Um, And the disciples immediately just regard that as totally preposterous, and they give Jesus, frankly, a sarcastic response. This is one of the most sarcastic things that you'll hear the disciples say anywhere in the Gospels. I think it's an indication of of their heart attitude. You know, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They're making the suggestion of Jesus seem preposterous. And of course, in the end, it will be the Lord Christ himself who provides dinner. Five loaves, two fish, prayed over for the Father's blessing, and then multiplied until they all ate and were satisfied. Five thousand of them. Jesus did not get frustrated or weary or exasperated either with the needy crowd or with the pushy disciples. No, Jesus gave them all bread in the wilderness. Now, what are some of the lessons we can learn from this story? And uh, I want to point out a number of things that we see in the love of Jesus, but I want to begin with these disciples these hard-to-love disciples, and uh, just examine just a little more closely their frustration because I think their negative example can show us a lot of things about, the, about ourselves. Uh, first, these disciples show us who finds it hard to love. Who finds it hard to love? Well, everyone does, and specifically including people who are very busy serving the Lord. Those people that are active, actively engaged in the ministry of Jesus in the world, those may be some of the people who find it the hardest to love other people. Remember earlier I mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 13 as um, a passage that, that drew me to Mark 6 to look at things from this uh, perspective. And when Paul was talking to the Corinthians about um, you know, telling them, look, love is not irritable, he's telling them that because they are a, a Christian community And that's exactly one of their struggles. He's saying that because this is a hard area for uh, believers in Christ. People who are active in local ministry, they are as likely to find it hard to love people as anyone. And the disciples are a, a perfect example, or maybe I should say an imperfect example. Here are men who have been busy serving the Lord. They've been preparing, performing miracles. They've been preaching the kingdom. They, they, they probably did Uh, more in that short time of ministry in terms of what they actually accomplished in in terms of getting results than most of us will accomplish in an entire lifetime. I mean, you could not criticize the disciples at all for how they engaged in that ministry. And now they are there 
with this amazing privilege, which I, I suppose any of us would give almost anything to have this privilege. They, were, they had a front row seat to watch Jesus do His work in the world, to hear Him preach, to see Him perform His kingdom miracles. And yet, even before they really had a chance to come down from that spiritual high, they are already getting frustrated with their circumstances, uh, thinking more about their needs than the needs of other people, and uh, finding it very difficult to love. And it just occurs to me that if an apostle can be loveless while he is spending time with Jesus, then this may be an area that I need to work on too. No matter who we are or what we do for God, this kind of lovelessness can be a real spiritual problem for us. And whenever I start to get irritated, frustrated, exasperated, particularly in ministry, um, I need to recognize that problem for what it really is. It is a failure to love. So if you ask the question, who is it who finds it hard to love? I think part of the answer is I do, if I am honest about the sin of a loveless heart. And disciples also teach us when we are likely to find it hard to love. Not just who finds it hard to love, but when we find it hard to love. Here are men who are tempted to sin at the end of a full day after a long trip when they are tired and hungry. And I think one of the things that we are seeing here is not just the weakness of the human heart, but also the weakness of the human body. And it's true for all of us. Physical weakness has a way of putting us in the way of spiritual danger. And, um, you know, this is a, a good question to ask if we find ourselves getting more frustrated than usual, giving more angry responses when we feel like, if we, if we look at things honestly, that the tone of our communications with other people, either in the home or in, in the church or in our place of work, if the tone of that is not a, a healthy tone, one of just the very practical things that we need to think about is, um, have, have we been getting um, healthy, healthy food to eat and getting enough to drink? Have we been attending to rest? Have we been keeping a regular pattern uh, of a biblical Sabbath? Is there a rhythm of play as well as work in daily life? Um, these are good questions for us to think about just in a very practical way. They're certainly very important things for parents to keep in mind. Um, a lot of times when children are at their worst, um, parents um, may be wise to think about the weakness that the children are bringing to that situation because they're tired, hungry, other things that they're dealing with. Um, and it may be more important to address those things and then you know, come around to the hard attitudes as well, but to have compassion for that, just for that human weakness. Notice as well that the disciples are tempted to be loveless. This is still in the category of the when, right after they have been very successful in serving the Lord. And I think there's no, um, that's not a, a coincidence, but it's actually something that's just very likely to happen in the Christian life. Anybody that's been in ministry can testify to this, that some of the strongest temptations will come after we have been very busy doing kingdom work. And one of the reasons for this is that Anytime the devil sees that he's been losing ground, he wants to gain that ground back. And, and frankly, a lot of us uh, are just very vulnerable uh, to his attacks. It's not that hard for him to regain ground uh, many times. And we should be alert to the fact that many times it's when we've been actively engaged in ministry and perhaps seeing the Lord work that that's going to be a time um, of, of what, what ought to be for us expected temptation and difficulty. And if we want to resist these 
temptations to lovelessness, we need to anticipate when we are likely to be physically or spiritually weak, when we may be in special need of prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit and the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ. Missionaries should pray for grace after a season of fruitful ministry. Students should pray for grace uh, the day after a long night of study. Fathers and mothers should pray for grace before they walk through the door after a difficult day of work. It's when we are weak that we can only be strong by the power of God, and we need to anticipate that need and ask the Lord for his grace. Here's another lesson to learn uh, from the disciples, and all of these are by way of negative example. Uh, don't you just love the disciples? Um, you know, I, I, uh, we were, I can't remember what passage we were reading for, for family devotions, and um, it's, it's one of those passages, and there are a lot of them in the Gospels where the disciples don't come off too well, uh, don't seem particularly clever or with it spiritually. And one of my kids said, I just, I just love the disciples. And the point was, you know, it makes it seem like there's something accessible here that, that we also can follow the Lord. If, if, if he loves the disciples, he can surely find room to love us. And basically, um, so here's another lesson to learn from the disciples, and that is how is it that a loveless heart treats other people, and particularly other people in need? Well, that's an easy one. Basically, a loveless heart doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, When the disciples are irritated with how long they have to wait for dinner, they want Jesus to send everyone away. And it's not the only time in the Gospels that the disciples try to keep people away from Jesus. You may remember they did the same thing when people were bringing babies for Jesus to bless. Uh, That wasn't a very flattering uh, portrait of the disciples either. And it it shows us what's tempting for us, I think, um, that sometimes we want to get away from other people, even if that means keeping them away from Jesus too. And notice here that um, in this um, loveless attitude, the disciples really expect people to use their own resources to solve their own problems. That was an issue we were touching on a little bit last night. When we really understand the grace of God, uh, we don't expect people to save themselves. We expect that they are going to need um, a hand of mercy and an arm of grace. But here, rather than um, asking Jesus for help um, in inviting Jesus to perform a miracle and trusting him to do that, rather than offering in some way their own service as part of God's provision for people's practical needs, rather than doing any of those things, the disciples simply pushed needy people away. They cared less about the genuine welfare of people in need and more about the effect that other people's problems were having on them. And that's tempting for us. Um, You see how big other people's problems are, and your your first thought is one of self-preservation. You know, this is is beyond anything I can do. What will this mean for me if I get involved with what's happening to them? And, um, you know, it's interesting how the disciples talk about this because they say to Jesus, you know, um, it's as if they're really thinking about the needs of the crowds. Uh, you know, here the people are hungry, here's what they need. And so it's actually presented as a way of getting them something to eat, but it also turns out to be a way for the disciples to get what they want. Sometimes even our way of helping someone can turn out to be partly selfish. 
and we quickly raise objections or make excuses when we don't think that we have the resources, as if that was really the question. So this is how a loveless heart treats other people. It puts what we want ahead of what they need, and if possible, tries to avoid their needs altogether. And of course, the real problem in all of that is not them, it's us. And it's important to be honest about that, because often um, we blame the people around us for the way they respond, or for the way we respond. Um, You know, here's the kind of thing people say, he really makes me angry. Uh, Notice what the subject of that sentence is and, and what the object of that sentence is. It's as if something outside of us was directly and totally responsible for our inward attitude. I'm not saying that other people are never annoying. Sometimes they are. But the spiritual issue for me is not how irritating you are. It's how irritable I am. Uh, th- that's, that's the way the Lord wants us to see the situation. I think if we are easily provoked, if we tend to get frustrated about little things, if our anger is out of proportion to the situation, all of that is evidence of a loveless heart. I like something that uh, Jonathan Edwards said, love is backward to anger and will not yield to it on trivial occasions. And so if you do kind of get angry about trivial things, uh, the way somebody else drives, uh, what your mother asks you to do, uh, what somebody else forgot to clean up or put away, what somebody else did or failed to do that makes your life a little less convenient, um, the, the real problem in all of that is our own failure to love. And rather than putting the blame onto somebody else, we need to confess our own need to have more of the kind of love that Jesus shows here in Mark chapter 6. Here's one more thing to learn from the disciples, and that is how a loveless heart responds to God. How does a loveless heart respond to God? Well, our frustration is not just a failure to love others, it's also a failure to love God. I've already noted here that the disciples try to tell Jesus his business and speak to him rather sarcastically. And rather than, um, you know, Jesus puts a question back on to them, uh, you give them something to eat. You know, what, what kind of response was Jesus inviting there? I suppose um, he was trying to humble them so that they would say, oh, yeah, good one, Lord. We, yeah, we don't, we don't have the resources. You know, we, we have to trust you and trust our Father for those resources. But rather than sort of picking up on this teachable moment, which was intended to show them that only God has the resources to provide for our needs, they they make a smart-mouthed remark instead. And lovelessness is like that. It has a negative view of God. It doesn't immediately seek his help, but gets angry about things instead. And so if money is running short, or time is running out, or problems are getting out of control... The loveless person does not trust God to provide what is needed, but instead tends to exaggerate the scope of the problem and then to get very exasperated with God for what he's doing or not doing. I like the way uh, Lewis Smedes adapts the famous saying from Augustine, 
um, and gives a kind of paraphrase. You know that famous quotation from Augustine that people are always using, our hearts are restless, Lord, until, they find their, until we find our rest in thee. We are irritable, Lord, until we make our peace with thee. You see, this, this kind of frustration with other people is directly connected to our relationship with God, which is why it is a serious spiritual problem to deal with. It doesn't just hurt other people, it also hinders our relationship with God. What we need is more of the Jesus love that we see in Mark chapter 6. And we see it in this passage in such amazing ways. And and it's not just an example that Jesus gives us that is somewhere outside of us that we can then strive to be like that example. No, this is a story about a Savior who empowers us with his love and by his death offers us forgiveness, and by his life empowers us to love the way that he does love. So uh, that's the context in which we see um, the love of Jesus here, not just as something to strive after, but something that, some, as something that he has the power to give us. And everything Jesus does here is exactly the opposite of what the disciples do. He's everything that we're not. And uh, that's why we need his transforming work to be effective in ministry. I imagine that Jesus probably was about as tired and hungry as the disciples. Um, it's, it's often, you get the, the Gospels don't dwell on it, but you get these little hints from time to time of Jesus worn out by the exertions of ministry, uh, sometimes desperately tired. I mean, you know, he, Jesus was capable of falling asleep in a boat in the middle of the storm. That, that's, that's how much he invested of himself in ministry. And here in this case, he'd been preaching and healing all day. Um, I once heard a homiletics professor say, and I I don't know if he had the research to back this up, but I kind of like what he said, so I I quote it. Um, He claimed that one hour of preaching takes as much physical energy as four hours of hard physical labor. Now, um, if you work with your hands, you probably don't agree with that. Uh, But the point is... Uh, it really takes something to give yourself in in ministry. And Jesus had been doing that all day. And he doesn't wish the crowds away. He doesn't uh, sort of give them the hint that they need to leave. Um, He just keeps blessing them. And here we see him feeding the 5,000 with daily bread and with the word of God. And you see what a ministry of love can do. And we should notice the way that Jesus loves here. He's, his love is drawn to people. He doesn't push them away. He pulls them close. He goes towards them. He leans in. You see that at the beginning of the story when uh, he first sees the crowd uh, gathering on the shore. And remember, he, Jesus had a destination in mind, a place of rest with his disciples. There was a legitimate goal. And it would have been, I think in a way, I suppose, even could have been God-honoring uh, for Jesus to sort of see this crowd developing and uh, kind of nudge Peter and say, you know, why don't, why don't we go over there? We, we can, we'll come back tomorrow or whatever, you know, uh, could have been said. But, but Jesus is drawn to these people in love. He, uh, he sees the crowd on the shore. Uh, he decides to leave the privacy of the boat and go to them. And Mark is very explicit in saying he did this because of his compassion for them, his love for them. Jesus regarded their need as of greater importance than his refreshment. And that's what love does. It it lets the needs of others set our agenda 
rather than insisting on our agenda and then kind of working the needs of others into our agenda if those needs fit. Um, it's a very different approach to life. And, and Jesus is particularly zealous to, to serve this way when it will give other people an opportunity to hear the word of God. Now, I'm not saying here, and, and David may well be speaking on this in a very practical way. I'm not saying here that, that there's no, we've never put limits on ministry. I've already touched on the need that we have for self-care. But whatever limits we place on our service should be determined by the calling of God and by the other callings we have in life and what is truly merciful for the people who are asking for help. Here's a a famous example of the way that love moves towards people in need. It's uh, it's from the life of uh, Mother Teresa. Uh, Her description of the first time that she uh, rescued a leper who was dying on the streets of Calcutta, uh, picked him up, clothed him, provided food for him, even cleaned him. And this man asked her the obvious question, why are you doing this? Nobody's ever done anything like this uh, for me before. Her answer was very simple, because I love you. And that is what love does. It moves us towards other people, not away from them, even when their needs seem overwhelming. It's in loving compassion and with tireless sacrifice that Jesus keeps teaching people all day, even when it's time for dinner, and the disciples tell him to send everybody away. Jesus is still drawn to them, even at that point, not just at the beginning of the day, but just as much at the end of the day, performing this miraculous multiplication. And notice, verse 41, doing so by looking up to his Father in heaven. Again, it's a very um, significant uh, Detail in the passage, looking up to heaven, he said a blessing. Uh, no detail, I said it already, no detail in the Bible is wasted. I, I love the, um, the comment that um, the uh, poet Cheslav Milos makes. Once you have noticed the detail, then notice the detail of the detail. Uh, that's good advice to follow in, in studying the scriptures. And um, here's something else that love does. It trusts God to provide what is needed. And remember, one of the main reasons the the disciples wanted to send people away and why they spoke to Jesus so sarcastically is because they were only thinking in terms of our own resources. They were just looking at, okay, what do we have on hand and and what is needed? And there's obviously a huge mismatch there, so, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to resolve this need. Um, You know, Jesus didn't have the bread to feed 5,000 people either. But he trusted his father to provide it. He trusted God to give him the miraculous power to provide. Um, You know, the lesson of this story is not that if you have the right number of loaves and fish, you'll be able to work miracles. Um, That's not the example that we're following here. But, But here is where love finds the strength to serve. It is by trusting in God's power and grace. And even Jesus in his earthly ministry demonstrates that for us. Um, When people come to us with problems that are beyond us, when they ask us questions we don't know how to answer, when they request something that we do not have to give, when they expect us to do something we really don't have the strength to do, um, you know, it's easy to get frustrated with people when we feel like they're coming to us with something that, that is beyond us. But love takes what it has And it lifts its eyes up to heaven, and it asks God to make our lives a blessing to people in ways that go beyond what we are able to give. And uh, we were given a number of um, 
down-to-earth stories last night uh, that were examples of exactly that, God's uh, power to bless. And this is, this is what we see in the life of Jesus, loving people by trusting the Father. And this is the kind of uh, love that Jesus calls us to enter into. And one of the ways that we enter into that love is by seeing the love that Jesus has for us. And, and here we come to something that I just think is remarkable and not to be missed in this uh, story from Mark's Gospel. Um, we've talked a lot about how the disciples respond to Jesus, and we've talked a lot about how Jesus responds to the multitudes. But what about the love that Jesus shows to the disciples? They get irritated with him. He does not get irritated with them. But he treats them with the same compassion that he had for everyone. Very significant here that the 5,000 are not the only people who had enough bread and fish that day. Notice what Mark says, verse 42 They all ate and were satisfied. I tend to think that included the disciples, but even if it didn't, there were plenty of leftovers. Um, As you well know, and it's one of the striking details of this story, the disciples had 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish, and this was no accident in the providence of God. Each disciple had a personal object lesson, Uh, Actually, a physical memory of what it was like to pick up that basket and and feel the weight of God's provision for each one of them. What an amazing lesson. And and in fact, you know, this is usually called uh, the feeding of the 5,000. I prefer to call it the feeding of the 5,012, which really helps you remember, you know, the point uh, of the passage. And those loveless disciples were embraced by the love of Jesus as much as anyone there that day. And he has that love for all of us. Even after all the times that I uh, get frustrated with him for what he has or hasn't done, um, he is never too tired to deal with me, but keeps on loving me. All of our sins of lovelessness, as much as any other sins, are covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And now, is it not appropriate for him to invite us to love other people the way that he loves us, with a love that is full of love, not loveless? Someone is uh, bound to, I think, irritate us almost every day, but when they do, how will we respond? I think we will respond in love if we have asked Jesus to put his love into our lives and really to fill our lives with his love. That is a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. If you doubt the power of God to answer a prayer, here's a simple prayer to pray. Lord Jesus, fill me with more of your love. You'll see that that prayer worked out in, in your life in ways that will surprise you. The love of Jesus will make us willing to be bothered with other people's problems. It will enable and empower us to love even when we don't think we have anything left to give. This is what I need in my life, more of the love of Jesus. And, and really, when you have that love in your life, everything that is frustrating, including all the frustrations of ministry, becomes yet another opportunity to demonstrate his love. It's, it's uh, not just a, um, something that's getting in the way. It's actually something that helps you uh, demonstrate the love of Jesus in the world. I like what uh, C.S. Lewis writes about in his book, The Four Loves. He, uh, he talks about what he calls the daily frictions and frustrations 
that we have in our relationships. And, um, and let me just tell you, if anybody knew about that, it was C.S. Lewis. Um, he took, early on in his life, he took responsibility for the care of the mother of one of his fallen comrades at war. She was a very difficult woman to live with. Uh, Lewis's own brother was essentially a lifelong alcoholic, and although they had a very close, warm relationship, brotherly in many ways, he was not an easy man to live with. Um, Lewis had a lot of these sort of daily frustrations in his life, probably more so than many people do. And so when Lewis talked about these daily frictions and frustrations, he knew what he was talking about. And what what he wrote about is how those... Those frustrations are an opportunity to prove to us that our natural love, what is within us, is not enough, that we need something more. Um, And usually what we think needs to be changed in the situation is the other person. Uh, You know, that would be the first thing we would pray about that. Lord, change them. But um, that's, and and Lewis gives examples of that kind of attitude. If only I had been more fortunate in my children, people say. And Lewis says, well, every child is sometimes infuriating. If only my husband were more considerate and less lazy, the wife says to her husband, about her husband, to which the husband replies, if only my wife had fewer moods and more sense. Uh, these are my words, or Lewis's words, by the way, not my words. These are his examples. Uh, His point is that, you know, in every one of us, there are attitudes and actions that are bound to irritate someone, but it doesn't mean that we have to respond in anger. There is an opportunity for heart change and for the work uh, and for the love of Jesus within us, an opportunity for us to be filled again with his love. Let me just close with a a true-to-life, simple illustration that, to me, when I saw it, just captured the kind of love uh, that Jesus is calling us to. Um, it, it's something that happened in a baseball game. This, by the way, is something David and I share as a real passion for the sport of baseball, though we don't always agree about the teams that people ought to root about, but that's a root for. That's a different story. Um, but there was a, a game between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Washington Nationals. Um, this was five or six years ago. It was in the middle of a pennant race. This is back when the Phillies were good. You may remember that. And um, There was a Phillies fan who was um, sitting in the upper deck behind home plate with his three-year-old daughter. Steve Montforto was his name. He was on the news after this with his little daughter, Emily. And there was a foul ball that curled back up into the upper deck, and Montforto reached over the railing, made a great catch, very exciting. And he does what a father does. He handed it to his little girl. And while he's still kind of high-fiving his friends, she just throws it over the railing. And his immediate reaction is one of just shock and dismay. And then he immediately just embraces his daughter in this, in this huge hug. And it was just an amazing picture, I think, of our uh, relationship with our Lord. Because the reality is that he places blessings in our hands that we would never be able to catch for ourselves. And we often squander those. We often throw them back. And rather than getting frustrated with us or pushing us away, he embraces us. And in that embrace, there is an empowerment to love and then keep on loving and not just loving, but actually embracing all of the people in our lives who may push us away, squander the blessings that we give them and God gives them.
when you've experienced this kind of love in your own life, it empowers you to show that love for others. Let's, let's pray for that grace together now. Our Father in heaven, our prayer is that as we go on in the Christian life, you would make us more like Jesus and less like ourselves. We confess that um, a lack of true and genuine and deep and compassionate love hinders us from being so much more effective in kingdom work, the kind of effectiveness we could have by your grace if we were full, uh, had more and more of your love. And we express to you this, this morning our, our, not only our repentance, but also our faith that you can give us this kind of love. And we express our openness that you would fill us uh, with more and more of the selfless, father-trusting, need-meeting, self-sacrificing love of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.